word to Exodus chapter 25. If you're new with us here, just a reminder that we are in the middle, actually more towards the end now, uh, but here in a sermon series through the book of Exodus. And we come this morning to cover 25 through 27. I won't read all of that in its entirety, but we will go through it and talk about various things. So if you have a copy of God's Word, leave it open in front of you because I will ask you to jump around and look at various things. If not, um, that's okay too. But just know that um, we'd love to have you with God's Word and to join with us. As I'm going to read a little bit here, I'm going to read from 24, uh, 15 through 25 Verse 9. So I'm going to back up a little bit because I want to make sure that we all understand where we are. Israel's there at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses and the elders have gone up at various levels. They're there, and Moses about, is about to stay, and we'll see the length of stay. And then he's going to receive all these other laws. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's received the Book of the Covenant. He's heard the promises. Uh, the people have ascended to those promises. And now God's going to give him instructions on the tabernacle and the priesthood. So let's pick it up there in chapter 24, beginning in verse 15. And let's give our attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and an errant word. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me, excuse me, that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary." That I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us and preserving it for us through the ages that we may have it even this morning. We've heard it read and we come to you now and ask that you would give us more than physical hearing. Lord, that you would grant to us spiritual hearing and understanding. That you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, make us more like our Lord Jesus. I pray for your people. I ask, Lord, that you would encourage them in this time. Help them, O oh God, as we study your word. And help me, your servant. Protect me from error. O oh God, I give you thanks for this great privilege. And I give you thanks for the people here this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The human imagination 
is a wonderful blessing. While the rest of creation is hardwired to simply respond to their surrounding environment, humans, like us, everyone here is human, right? Humans were made in God's image. Humans do more than just respond to their environment. Often they create their environment. I mean, humans can dream and imagine things, and they can often make those things a reality. I mean, who thought of this, right? Human imagination is the fuel of human innovation, whether it be art, architecture, or science. The human imagination is a wonderful blessing, but the human imagination can also be a dreadful curse. Consider the man I read about last week, a man named Alexander. Alexander recently accepted a new job, an analyst position with a bank. After a month on the job, his performance was absolutely terrible. Summoned to a meeting with the department chairman, he was asked why he seemed so incapable of performing even the most basic functions of the job. Alexander, I'm shocked, said the boss. Your resume said that you had five years' experience working as an analyst. Why are you performing so poorly, even with basic tasks? Well, to be completely honest, sir, Alexander replied, your job posting also said that you wanted somebody with imagination. I'll give you a minute to let that sink in. His imagination decided to make up that he was ready for this job. He says, this morning, we're going to continue our series through the book of Exodus. And as we do, we're going to come to the instructions that God gives to Moses for how his tabernacle is to be built. This tabernacle will be, as we see clearly in 25.8, look there, it says, a sanctuary. It'll be a sanctuary where God will dwell. God will live in the midst of his people. And not surprisingly, we learn in chapters 25 through 27 that God is very particular about how he wants his tabernacle to be built. God gives to Moses specific, and I mean very specific instructions for its construction. You see, God does not want his tabernacle and its furnishings left to the imagination of the people. This is attested to several times in the text itself. We read 25.9. Look, it's there. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, so you shall make it. Turn over to 25.40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you, on the mountain. And then flip over to 2630. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And then look at 278. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. God gives very particular instructions for how he wants this to be constructed. And all of this points us to a very important truth. And that truth is this. God's people do not worship him according to their imaginations. God's people worship him 
according to his revelation. Say it again. God's people do not worship him according to their imaginations, but according to his revelation. The Lord, the the creator and the sustainer of the universe, is not a God that we have imagined. He is the holy God. The God who has revealed himself in creation and revealed himself in his word. So when he directs his people how they are to worship him, how are they to respond? In faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. Faithful obedience. Sounds familiar, right? It's a common theme in the book of Exodus. We've heard it before, have we not? Moses did what? Even amongst all his objections, what did he do? He faithfully obeyed. God's call to return to Egypt. The people, as weird as it sounded, take some blood and throw it on the doorposts, be spared from the 10th plague. What did they do? They faithfully obeyed, and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. The people have, to this point, faithfully obeyed the collecting of their daily manna. God gave them instruction for how they were to collect it, how they were to have it for their provision. God provided it, so they faithfully obeyed collected it. And of course, we've seen the last two weeks, God's given his law, and what have his people done? We will faithfully obey everything you tell us to do. All that you have have said to do, we will do. We will obey. They have pledged to obey. But I hope you remember that this faithful obedience is not something that God's people are able to manufacture on their own. They can't. For the faithful obedience that's needed is both a gift from God. It's a gift from God as a response to his grace. We've said this before. I'll say it again. God's grace always precedes. It saturates and it even supersedes all of his commands and all of his callings. After all, God is the God who has delivered his people in grace. He is the God who continues, as we talked about last week, to faithfully provide and protect for his people by his grace. He's the God who has promised to bring them to the promised land, and he will keep his promise. Faithful obedience is and always will be a response, a God-given, God-initiated response to God's amazing and extravagant grace. And it becomes abundantly clear as we come to what I'll call our first point this morning. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is point one. The summons. The summons to provide for the tabernacle. The summons to provide for the tabernacle. There in chapter 25, 1 through 9 that we read, God calls upon the people to give an offering of goods. He calls on them to give an offering of goods to be used for the construction of the tabernacle. They're called to give, you can see it there, we we read it already, gold, silver, and bronze, right? Precious metals. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and linens. They're to give goat hair. Various animal skins. Wood. Oils, spices, 
all kinds of precious stones. I mean, think about this for a minute. Such a structure as what they're going to make, such an undertaking is going to require resources. These aren't things just lying around in the wilderness of Sinai. They need these things. So God summons his people to provide what is needed. I want you to take note of three very important things about this summons. First, the summons is a call to faithful obedience. It's actually a call to respond to God's grace. God had done amazing things for his people, and he's promised to continue doing such amazing things. And and he's promised he's going to dwell with them, and he's now inviting them to respond to that. God says, I'm going to come and dwell among you. Would you respond to that? Build a place for me to inhabit. Build a place for me, a place of worship. By his grace, he's opening the door for his people to worship him and have fellowship with him. Indeed, this is as we've sung about already, it's amazing grace that God would condescend and do that. Second, notice that God is not asking anything from them that he had not first provided. So I want you to ask yourself a question. Where did a bunch of freed slaves under oppression of a pharaoh running for their very lives, where did they get all this stuff? they get these precious metals and stones, all these fine threads and linens, all these oils and spices? Is God asking them to give something that they're like, wait a minute, I don't have this. I didn't have it there. How can I find it here? Some of you already know the answer. If you just flip back and look at Exodus 3, 21 and 22, you'll see that God promised that his people would not leave Egypt empty-handed. They would leave with the treasure of the Egyptians. That they would ask of their neighbor and they'd just give it to him. Like, just get out of here. Take this stuff. Get out of here. God promised that. Not only did he promise it, if you go to 1236, if you go to 1236, you'll see that this promise was fulfilled. They left with the treasures of the Egyptians. They left with all these things. So here in chapter 25, God is summoning Israel to give back to him, to give back to him what he himself has provided Give back some of that 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 you took, that I gave to you. Give it back. And third, notice that this summons is what we would call a free will offering. It's a free will offering. Now, there will come temple taxes later, right, and tabernacle taxes and that. But not here. Notice, look again at the second half of 25.2. You may have missed it when we read it earlier. Look what it says. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This is not compulsory giving. It's giving from the heart. It's heart giving. It's a call to personal sacrifice. It's a call to deny themselves, to give up these precious things and to follow the path that God has set. There's a lot of application here, isn't there? You think, uh-oh, pastor's going to go off on tithing here. Well, I'll let the Spirit do that. But I will ask you this. What do we have? What do, what do you have? What do I have? What do we have that hasn't been given to us by the Lord himself? You might think, but I worked hard for that. Who gave you the strength to work? Who gave you that opportunity? Who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? 
who owns all things, including us as his people. Every bit of our time, every bit of our talents, every bit of our treasures are gifts. They're gifts from God. And still today, God summons us. He calls us, me and you. He calls us to follow in faithful obedience and to give of ourselves. He calls us to give of our time, to give of our talent, to give of our treasure, to be used to build Christ's kingdom here on earth. And it may not always be about material building. This is about material building. They're building a tabernacle. Although, and we've got lots of folks out today, but you know, we see that need even in our own church, right? It's getting awfully crowded, and we're starting to outgrow this space awfully quickly, right? Sometimes it is material need, but it's not always material need. It's spiritual service of sharing our lives and the gospel with others. That's included. Sharing what God has so graciously given us. I've got extra food, let me bring that to you. I've got time to sit with you and help you in your time of need. I've got time. I have this ability. I can fix cars. I can't, that's not the quote, please don't quote. (laughs) I can move heavy appliances. I can serve in the nursery, children's ministry, music team, I can go on and on. You see, as a church body, we take seriously our vision to share our lives and our gospel with those in the community. We've been called to join together in building Christ's kingdom here on earth. So I think the immediate application here is we need to respond. We need to respond in faithful obedience. So I won't tell you how to do that, but I'll ask you, have you asked? Have you asked? Lord, how would you have me? How would you have me give? How would you have me serve? How would you have me live for the sake of your kingdom? So that's point one, the summons to provide for the tabernacle. Let's move on to our second point. I'll call that the structure and symbolism of the tabernacle. Yeah, I snuck in two points in one there, okay? It's the structure and symbolism, they go hand in hand, of the tabernacle itself. If you haven't figured it out already, and maybe some of you just don't know this. Maybe I heard this. The tabernacle is a tent. Some of you are like, yeah, I get that. Some of you are like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't think about that. The tabernacle is a tent. Okay? It is a tent. God's people had been dwelling in tents since they left Egypt, and they would continue to dwell in tents until they settle in the land of Canaan. And as they journey there, God will go with them. Remember, his angelic presence is there. We talked about that last week. But God will go with them, right, as the tabernacle goes with them. Where the tabernacle goes, so God and his presence goes with them. The details for the tabernacle, the tent itself, are found in chapter 26. If you hadn't read that already, I encourage you to do that. But I'm going to summarize its basic structure for you. I told my wife... When I left this morning, I said, I wish I could just sit one up in the parking lot. You know, so like as you walked into church this morning, you could go through one. I don't even think there's enough room out there. But anyway, it would be neat. So for you visually minded people, this may help. If you're not visually minded, let me know and I'll send you a link. Okay? I'll send you a link so you can see this and it'll help you. So the tabernacle itself, the actual tent part, consisted of two spaces or two rooms. The inner room... The very inner part of the entire structure was called the most holy place. Or we might call it the the really holy place. 
Its measurement was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. Now you're like, what's a cubit? It's like that. Okay, that's about a cubit, I guess. How about we just say about 15 feet? All right, it's a 15 by 15 by 15 perfect cube. Okay, it's a cube. It's perfect. The most holy place is a perfect cube. By the way, for those of you who were here when we preached the Revelation, go back and listen to that. When the new city comes down, when the new Jerusalem comes down, we looked at its measurements, it was also a perfect cube. Right? The idea that now we all dwell there in the most holy place. So aside there for that. But there's important. Measurements are important to the Hebrews. It's important for us as well. The outer room... So you had the most holy place, or the really very holy place right there. The outer room, which is kind of connected, but yet separated by a curtain or a veil, you might call it. This room was called the holy place. So you had the holy place, and then the most holy place. The holy place was 10 cubits by 20 cubits by 10 cubits high. So it's like a rectangle attached to a perfect square, okay? Plus you got to go upward, and I'm already lost, okay. I've got some construction people and architect people in here. You're like, I get it, okay? All right, so you have a big rectangle, square, same height, holy place, most holy place, separated by a curtain. There's another curtain blocking the entrance to the holy place, okay? And it separated it from the yard. We'll just call it the yard outside. Uh, Your translation might call it the courtyard, right? So the courtyard outside, The courtyard measured 50 cubits by 100 cubits. So it's got a big open space all the way around it. It wasn't as high. A little bit of a shorter fence. A little bit of a shorter fence. So it wasn't as high as the other two. All right. So if you take into account those smaller curtains around the courtyard, you see that this is like one big structure, right? One big tent, one big structure made up of three different spaces. You have the courtyard that goes around, and then you have the holy place and the most holy place, right? there, separate by the curtains. All the worshipers could enter the courtyard. Everyone can go in the courtyard. The holy place, as we'll talk about next week, only the priests. The very, really most holy place, only the high priest, and only one time a year, okay? So get that, hopefully you get that in your mind. Um, Maybe I can get some volunteers and we can like hunch down the ground and pretend to be, I don't know, but let me know, and I'll send you a really good picture of this. So from there, going back to chapter 25, 10 through 22, we find instructions for the only furnishing, the only piece of furniture that goes in the most holy place. So in the most holy place, there's only one piece of furniture, what is called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, for those of you interested in the redemptive historical plot line of Scripture, this is actually the third Ark mentioned in Scripture. The first was Noah's Ark. The second, you might be confused because it was called a basket, but the Hebrew word is ark, and that was the basket or ark that Moses' mother put him in and sent him down the river where he was found by the Egyptians. So, this is the third ark that's mentioned. Moses, by the way, sent down the river to escape infanticide. So, because of that, think of those three are those two arks and this current one. They're all symbols of God's salvation from judgment. Even this Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's salvation 
from judgment. And it's here at this ark where the mercy seat would, would cover. God would specially dwell here. And he would not, uh, excuse me, he would meet with his people here, but only through his chosen mediator. God is covenantly faithful to his people. He will meet with them through the mediator. And who's the mediator? At this point, it's Moses and Aaron, right? It's Moses and Aaron. Of course, through the priesthood throughout. This is where the meeting happens. Some of you know some of the things about this space, right? The great high priest was so afraid to go in there that he would wear bells so that the other guys could hear him. And they would even tie a rope to him because if he died, if he did it wrong and fell over dead in judgment, if he hadn't cleansed himself, they could pull him out. So here in this most holy place, the holy of holies, this is where God, the holy God, would dwell. Look at 25, 21 through 22. Give you an idea. God tells Moses, you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. What's that? That's the Ten Commandments, right? There'll be other things put in there later, but this is God's covenant with his people, the Ten Commandments. Put that in there. Verse 22, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two angels, the cherubim that were there, there are on the ark the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. All right, then in 25, 23 through 40, we find instructions for two of the three furnishings that will go into the holy place. We're, we're, we're moving outward now from the Holy of Holies out to the holy place. There's three pieces of furniture here. We get two uh, in these verses. We get the third one, the altar of incense. We'll talk about it in chapter 30 next week. The first is the table. They're told to build a table to put here. This table was to have 12 loaves of bread. They were replenished, right? 12 loaves of bread, one loaf for each of the tribes of Israel. So we'll talk about some of the symbolism, the structure of the table, but the symbolism. This, this bread is a symbol, a reminder, not only of how God provides for his people, how he provides them what they need to eat, but as a reminder, and this is important, that every tribe played an important role. It was the Levites who were the priests, but every tribe played an important role in God's family. You might say today, everybody has a seat at the table, right? Everybody has a seat at God's table. That's what this is communicating. All of God's people are receiving the blessings of this. The second furnishing in the holy place, 25, 31 through 40, is the golden lampstand. This is not your common, like, department store lampstand, all right? You read here, this thing is amazing, how much gold goes into this. The golden lampstand, it's positioned directly across from the table, is kind of a practical piece of furniture. Numbers 8 tells us that, you know. <laughs> they had to light it so they can see what's going on in there. It'd be pretty dark <laughs> inside of here, particularly if it was nighttime. So there's a lamp, right, that lights the way. But more than that, you can see in, in 2537, uh, there are seven actual lamps. So you might think of a, a menorah-type structure, right? So it does have these seven lamps, likely symbolizing that God's grace and light shines over all seven days of the week, that we're always living before the face of God, always called to holiness before God, not just on some special day, right? Even though that day is special and set apart, right? But it's a focus on that. I should also note that further instructions are given over in 27, 20 and 21, 
Uh, basically, Aaron and the priest are told to keep those lamps burning. Keep them burning. Keep them going. Oil is to be provided from the people to keep this going. The last furnishing uh, detailed in our text this morning is found in 27, 1 through 8. And this furnishing is not in the holy place. It's actually in the courtyard. It's the bronze altar. It is also one of two that goes in the courtyard. And chapter 30 will tell us about the second one, uh, which is the altar of incense. Uh, but here we have the bronze altar. The bronze, excuse me, I said incense. I meant to say the laver. Excuse me, the bronze laver, the washing pot. I apologize for that. The bronze basin. Now this altar, uh, think about this altar. You enter into the courtyard and you're immediately confronted there in front of the holy place with this altar. It's like a big stove, right? It's where things are cooked. It is about seven and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide by about four and a half feet high. It's really big, right? Because that's where the animals were placed upon the altar. I want you to notice as well that all those furnishings inside the holy place and the most holy place, they were overlaid with gold. These, the, the, the wash basin and the altar, are overlaid in bronze. The, court, the things in the courtyard are overlaid in bronze. Only gold, which was at this time the most precious of metals they would have had available to them right then, only that was to be used. Gold was to be used in the holy place and the most holy place. But outside, it was bronze, the earth and nature of it. So this altar is constructed so that sacrifices could be given. The people, as they come into the courtyard, as they uh, go to the priest who would then go before God, they were to approach God only by way of sacrifice. Because communion with God requires sacrifice. I mean, think about this. Put yourself in their sandals. You walk in, the first thing you see is this giant stove, right? You see this giant altar with animals being sacrificed, and we'll save some of the details of what that would have been like, but all this going on there, you're immediately confronted. It's massive, but it's a picture. It's a symbol. This is the massive distance that exists between you and God because of your sin. They went in there knowing that they were sinners, and there's a massive gap that stands between them and God. And to bridge this gap, it required sacrifice. The author of the book of Hebrews in 9.22 reminds us of this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. For there to be no enmity, for there to be peace, there must be Sacrifice. So it was here that people brought their sacrifices, their burnt offerings, their sin offerings, their fellowship offerings, their wave offerings. It was here where blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins and for ongoing communion with God. So in summary, we see that the tabernacle had a, a specific structure. It had specific furnishings. And all of those furnishings and the structure itself is symbolic of, of who God is. He's holy, right? He's set apart. He's distinct. But he condescends in his eminence. He condescends to his people and he dwells among them. He relates to them because he's in relationship with them. So let's go then to our third and final point. I want us to consider the significance of the tabernacle. You might be sitting there going, I got point one, got that application, but what in the world am I supposed to make of this? What am I supposed to make of this tent? What does it mean to me today? So let's look, third and final point, the significance of the tabernacle. 
throughout the rest of Exodus and most of the rest of the Old Testament. The tabernacle and then its more permanent replacement, the temple, right, served an incredible significance to the Old Covenant, when you say the Old Testament people of God, right? I think we all can agree. We see that. That's where, that's where it all happened, right? That's where, every, that's where we were to bring our, our sacrifices. The Psalms of Ascent, right, to be sung as people were on their way up the mountain, right, to Jerusalem so they could go and offer their sacrifices, right? So much of the life of Israel, the Old Covenant people, revolved around the temple, But what about New Covenant believers? What about New Testament believers who live on this side of the cross, who live after the destruction of the temple, and it was destroyed in AD 70? Uh, But what about this newfound freedom we have in Christ? What is the significance that we can find in the tabernacle for us? Well, I'm thankful that my imagination didn't have to come up with an answer. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's begin in verse 1. I'll read some passages through here for us. Verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent or a tabernacle was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant and all these things, right, that uh, throughout redemptive history, there were things added to this. So understand that and these furnishings uh, that are given. But let's go on through this. We also know uh, in verse 4 that it wasn't just the uh, Ten Commandments that were placed in there, but there was also some manna and the budding staff uh, that happened later were there. And then the cherubim above it. Now go to verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, verse 11, but but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now skip down to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies or shadows of the true things, but he's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the the earthly tabernacle was but a type and a shadow of God's heavenly temple. It was an earthly picture of a heavenly reality. This shadow uh, is it's because of the, the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, right, who is, so this shadow is just a picture of Jesus and what he would come to do. He is our Emmanuel. He is our God with us. And as he was with us, and because of his work on the cross, we don't need an earthly tabernacle as a place for God to dwell. We don't need the earthly tabernacle for us to have a place where God will meet with us. We are the body of Christ, and God dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. That veil that separated us, what happened to it when Christ died? The veil that hid the Holy of Holies, what happened to it? It was torn in two. It was completely torn into, thus making a way for us to have full and final access to God through Jesus Christ, who right now is at the right hand of God in heaven, interceding for us. He ministers among the lampstands on behalf of his church. He intercedes for us there. We don't need the blood of bulls and goats and our own works of our own hands to somehow make us right with God. Jesus has done it. Finally and fully, the tabernacle was screaming to the old covenant people, there's something better. This is a picture of something better to come. And in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to do this work. So no longer do we need to shed the blood of animals upon an altar to satisfy wrath against sin. God's wrath has been satisfied against his children's sin on the cross. Jesus, the great high priest, went there, the perfect high priest, and offered his perfect self in our place. He became sin for us and exhausted God's wrath. No longer do we need to keep lamps burning to symbolize the light that God provides. Jesus appeared. He came, the true light. He came into the world. He's the light of the world, and he shined his glory and his grace upon us. Surely that was in John's mind in John 1 and in 1 John 1 when he talked about that. The fullness of his light now comes upon us and makes the way clear, and he gives us his light so that we can spread that light. No longer do we need to display bread upon the table to remind us that we have a seat at God's table. Bread on a table that we can't see unless we're a priest. Because Christ, the very bread of life, he gave himself. And so we come to this table. We don't don't know that there's a table somewhere. We actually do come to the table. There is a seat for us at the table. And we fellowship and have communion with God through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And no longer do we need to rely upon earthly priests going into the most holy place. You have full, unfettered access. Every time I say in my home, I just can't allow my children to have full and unfettered access to the internet without my oversight. I just can't. Immediately, I'm like, but thank God that he gives me full and unfettered access to Jesus. I'd much rather tell my children and others about that. I want to tell you, you have full and unfettered access to God through Jesus Christ. Those are great privileges. I hope you see the great privileges that you have in Christ. 
I hope you see that we are not left, even today, to worship God according to our imaginations. We're here doing what God has prescribed for us to do in his word. And ultimately, we don't have to imagine how God will save us. God has saved us through Jesus. And what did Jesus himself say? These are not my words. These are his words. You can turn to John 14, 6 and and see it. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So people can find all different ways by their imaginations to come to God, but they will not come to God unless they come through Jesus Christ. So the call comes out to all of us. If you're a believer, you're here this morning, and you have come to God through Jesus Christ, you have much reason to praise. If you're here this morning and you have not come to God through Jesus Christ, I implore you, I beg of you, would you take a moment, would you turn your eyes to heaven? I pray that God would convict your heart, show you the seriousness of your sin, and that he would change your heart and give you faith. Because there is no other name, there's no other way that you can be saved. Nothing you can come up with on your own, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.